If we please turn in your Bibles to the book of 1 Corinthians. We're going to be in chapter 9. We're going to be looking at verses 19 through 23 this morning. If you're using the Pew Bible, that's found on page 957. 957. And just to give a, a recap of where we are, 1 Corinthians is a letter to a, a very worldly church. It was a, a Gentile church. It was in a city that was prosperous and pluralistic and, and pagan. Uh, the church was, was growing. The gospel was going forth in this church. They were, they were making an impact on the city. But there was also a, a temptation for this church, a temptation for them to compromise, compromise with the culture, a temptation for them to lose the distinctiveness of their Christian witness. And in many ways, the, the church in first century Corinth was very much like 21st century America, the church here. The Corinthians, like us, they had to, to balance being in the world, but not being of the world. They, like us, had to evangelize rather than be evangelized by the ungodly culture. And the immediate context of this passage, <clears throat> in verses 8 through 10, they're answering this question about, Food sacrificed for idols. This is okay for, for Christians to eat. And there were those who were knowledgeable. They had the knowledge that actually puffed up, that led to pride. They thought it was fine. They recognized that there's, there's, no, there's no real multiple gods. They recognized there's only one god. So they figured it was fine to eat this food sacrificed to idols. And this would have actually been what they wanted to do because it would have been very difficult not to eat this food. They would have very much stood out in this culture if they did not eat this food. But they're what they're called the weak Christians. And they saw real spiritual danger in eating this food. And if they saw the, the knowledgeable Christians eating the food, it could tempt them to violate their conscience. It could tempt them to harden their heart to the Holy Spirit's leading and basically cause them to sin against their conscience. And Paul's argument in chapter 8 is that for the sake of these weaker brothers, the knowledgeable Christians should not eat this food. They should refrain from eating this food, sacrificed to idols. And then in chapter 9, what we saw last week, we looked at the first 18 verses. Paul then uses himself and Barnabas as an example of surrendering rights, surrendering legitimate rights that they have in order for the gospel to go forth, in order to remove any stumbling block uh, to the gospel, to, to, to people coming to faith, to, to them growing in their faith. And last week, Paul looked at surrendering his legitimate rights to worldly support from this church in Corinth that he was ministering to. Well, today, Paul expands from the specific example to show the general principles that really uh, guided his entire ministry and how he gives up his freedom to all things, gives up his freedom for, to become all things to all people in order that some might be saved. So that's where we're going today. So 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 19 to 23. Hear now the word of the Lord. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew, in order to win the Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. 
I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. Let's pray. Lord, we pray for your Holy Spirit to be with us. Lord, I pray for your Holy Spirit to be with me, to speak through me. Father, I pray for every single one of us here, every one of us who is watching on the live stream. Lord, I pray that you will open our hearts to hear from you, that we will have an encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ, that we will see him and that he will be glorified and we will be changed, each one of us, more into the image of Jesus Christ. It's in his name and for his glory we pray. Amen. Well, anyone who has ever served as a missionary, and I know we have some here who served full-time as missionaries, or any who have served overseas as a, in a uh, short-term mission trip, you know the importance of contextualization. The message of the gospel, the, the biblical principles that we present, they must be presented, they must be proclaimed in a way that the culture could understand them, the, one, the people we are evangelizing, so they can hear what we're saying to them. For example, if we went to a country that did not speak English, it would not make much sense for us to stand up there preaching in English, to hand them a Bible in English that they couldn't read. It would make no sense. We would want to learn the language. We would want to know how they speak, to be able to communicate with the people to whom we're ministering. So we would go to to language school. But beyond simply learning the language, we would want to understand something of the culture. We'd want to understand their history. We'd want to understand any particular issues uh, that may be sensitive to them, that may be taboo, that may be offensive, so as not to needlessly hinder the proclamation of the gospel. And we would want to remove as many barriers as possible so that the gospel could be heard, so it could be understood, that it could be ultimately embraced. And we do this because we know that the gospel of Jesus Christ is the only hope. The only hope for a lost world. And in the all, it's, it's, it's the only way that a, <clears throat> a sinner can be made right with a holy God. <clears throat> and we would want to use words, we would want to use illustrations and applications that make sense to the people we're ministering to, make sense in their culture to those we're speaking. And our goal really is to make disciples of Christ. Our goal is not to make them Americans. It's, our goal is not to, to make them American Christians. Our goal is to make them disciples of Christ. Now, in principle, this seems obvious, but in practice, it could be very difficult. Some of you may have heard of a controversy a few years ago with, uh, at Wycliffe Bible Translators with respect to some translations of Scripture that they were using in Islamic countries. And one aspect of Christianity that is particularly offensive in the Muslim world is the idea that Jesus is the Son of God. It's hard to really explain how offensive this is. The Muslims really see this as idolatry. They see it as blasphemous. They see, if you say that Jesus is the Son of God, that you are attributing partners with God. In, in Islamic culture, this is called the sin of shirk. It is actually a damnable and unforgivable sin. So you can see how serious it is just, just saying Jesus is the Son of God. Now, if you're a Bible translator and you're translating, say, the, the Gospel of Mark into a language in a predominantly Muslim country, do you know what the very first verse of the Gospel of Mark is? very first verse says, the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So if you're a Bible translator, you know if you hand this to your average Muslim, 
They would open it and they would they wouldn't get past the first verse. They would immediately throw it out. They would say this is blasphemous. They would not want to hear you any further. They would be highly offended. So the translators, knowing that this would be a major hindrance, they changed the translation from Son of God to Messiah. Now the question is, is this acceptable type of con- contextualization? This is what the controversy was. See, there's a big difference between Son of God and Messiah. Yes, Jesus is both, but these terms do not mean the same thing. So this is a question. This is something that people need to wrestle with. They're changing scripture. Now, taking contextualization to the extreme is something called the insider movement, and some of you may have, may have heard of it. This is particularly in Muslim countries, but it could really be in, in any culture. And it's particularly important in Muslim countries because some of you may know in some of these countries, you could be killed if you convert from Islam to Christianity. You could be killed. Some of it legally, some of it, it would not necessarily be legal, but family members would do it anyway. And what the insider movement is, is, is people would basically be a secret Christian. They would identify as a Muslim. They would worship as a Muslim in, in this case, but they would attribute the worship and the prayers to Christ and the triune God rather than Allah of Islam. And again, by, by all intents and purposes, these Christians are indistinguishable from the surrounding Muslim culture. And again, is this an acceptable form of contextualization? Let's bring it closer to home. See, we're not only to be missionaries out there, we can be missionaries right here, right in our hometown, right here in Albany. So the truth is that despite the Christian past of our country, despite living in the Bible Belt, the majority of our neighbors, perhaps even the majority of people sitting in churches at this very moment, do not know the gospel. They do not know Christ, but they think they are Christian. I watched the entirety of a a church service uh, of a large church in in this area. And I I went through it. There was a lot of good things in in this service. Very high-quality music. Uh, They had uh, videos showing the way that they uh, served the community. And they were doing some really good service in the community. And then there was an upbeat motivational speech. I wouldn't say a sermon, but it was a motivational speech. And it was how you can um, overcome problems. And they had a few Bible verses thrown in. They they weren't expounded, but they were put in. And then after the the talk, the speaker said to the congregation, he says, everyone close their eyes. It It was dark in the congregation. And he said, if you want to follow Jesus, raise your hand. And then he said a prayer to these people. And then he assured them if they raised their hand that they were now Christians. But my friends, there was no gospel. There was no talk of sin. There was no mention that there's a barrier that exists between a holy God and, 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 and us because of our sin, because of our rebellion. There's no mention about Jesus, that Jesus took upon this sin on himself, this guilt of the sin, and that this guilt was punished in Christ on the cross. No mention that Jesus is both fully God and fully man, and that Jesus is the only person, the only person to ever live who was perfectly obedient to God's law, who did not reveal rebel against God, who fulfilled God's law perfectly. And what was missing from this service was the good news, the most wonderful news, that we who were dead in our sins can be made alive in Christ, that God basically makes a swap, that our sin is given to Christ and it is punished on the cross in Christ. And Christ's obedience is then given to us. And it's rewarded in us. We get the reward that Christ earned. And it's an eternity of God's fellowship. 
We're rewarded by becoming a new creation in Christ. We no longer are God's enemies. We are God's beloved children. We love God. We love the things of God. We want to please our Father. And this is the gospel, and this gospel is missing in so many so-called Christian churches. And my friends, this is our mission field. This is our mission field. And we must learn how to communicate. We must learn how to contextualize the gospel message so those out there will hear this message. And I'm sure this church that I, that I listened to, this was the goal of their leaders. That's what they were trying to do. They were trying to remove these barriers. Lively music attracts people. Excellent quality production attracts people. Community involvement is great. As we were praying, we want to see how we can better be involved in the community. Practical advice, that is important. It helps people overcome life's problems. These are all attractives. These draw people in. This works. This church had hundreds of people in there. It removed the barriers. But I wonder, and I don't know these people, I'm sure this is not their intention, but I wonder if one of those barriers that need to be removed is the gospel itself. Because the gospel message is not attractive. The gospel message is something that we do not want to hear. Sinners do not want to hear. That we, that we are sinners? That God's not happy with us? Of course God's happy. God loves us. We think God loves us. I love myself. No. The gospel says that, we are, that God is not happy with us. That God does not want us to have our best life now. But God wants us to change. God wants us to be holy. God wants us to be like Jesus. And it's something that we can't do on our own. If we try to do it, there's no way we can do it on our own. The good news is that Jesus does it for us, and all we have to do is to accept it. But I wonder if there would still be all those people if that was the focus. And I suspect not. Some of you may be aware of a, of a video clip that's making its rounds on social media. It's of the late-night comedian uh, Stephen Colbert. And he talks about his, his Christian faith, so to speak. And I've listened to the, the clip, and Colbert does not articulate the gospel. He, doesn't, he speaks of, of a, really of a vague spirituality, um, and he identifies himself as, as, a, as a Christian and as a Catholic. But there's nothing that he describes that's distinctly Christian, distinctly Catholic. There's no talk of sin. There's no talk of, of repentance. There's no talk of Christ and what Christ has done. I think no one in the culture would really be offended by these remarks. And this is not really new. Uh, there are many who claim to be Christian and deny core doctrines, biblical doctrines. There are many who are clergy who deny clear biblical doctrines. There are even some who, in clergy in some Christian denominations who are atheists, who admit to being atheists. So this is not what's surprising. But the thing that's surprising is that they're well-known evangelical leaders, even people in our own denomination who applauded this testimony as a great example of contextualization, a great example of how Christians ought to engage the culture. And my question is, how do we communicate the gospel? How do we engage the culture? How do we contextualize? Well, we don't look to late-night comedians. We don't look to the marketing profession. We look to Scripture. We look to the greatest missionary in the history of the church. We look to the Apostle Paul. And in this passage, Paul gives us the principles that he used. And not only do we see the principles, but we also have Paul's example. That's what we heard with Nathan read in the book of Acts. We have how he applies these principles in different situations. So that's what we're going to look at. We're going to look at these principles. 
First principle, the first thing that we see, if we want to be an evangelist, if we want to be used by God to bring other people to faith, first thing that we see in this passage is it's going to be costly. It's going to be personally costly to us. We see this in verse 19. Paul says, For although I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. See, what Paul does is he gives up his freedom. Paul gives up his legitimate rights. He gives up his position as a Christian, his position as an apostle, and he gives this up to be a servant. He gives it up to be a servant to all. My friends, are we willing to do this? Are we willing to do this? Are we willing to give up our rights? Are we willing to give up our freedoms? Are we willing to become servants of all? Are we willing to give up our reputation? To have people hate us, to have people despise us? Are we willing to have people mock us and malign us for standing on God's word, for proclaiming the gospel? That's what's going to happen if we do. And are we willing to pay this price? Are we willing to pay this price so others can hear about Christ? So others can be rescued from the most horrific fate imaginable, an eternity separated from God in the torments of hell? Are we willing to pay this price? And my friends, this is the path for all Christians. If we want to be used from God by God, this is our path. This is the path of Paul. But Paul was just pointing toward Christ himself. Paul imitated Christ, who said in Mark 10, 45, For the Son of Man, Jesus, came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's our example. That's our marching orders. That's what every Christian is to follow. And this is hard work. There's no doubt about it. I don't like this. I like comfort. We all like comfort. We're Americans. We, we demand our rights. We want people to serve us. We like going into restaurants and, and demanding that they serve us and do everything we want. We get our food exactly the way we want. And if we don't, we, go, we send it back because we have our rights. We want everyone to bow to our will. But Paul, the example of Paul and really the example of Christ is service. It's not demanding our way. It's not demanding our freedom. So how do we do this? How do we actually do this? And this brings us to the second principle that we see in this text. And second, we see if we want to do this, if we want to minister to people, if we want to be used by God, we defer to the other person's preference. We defer to the other person's background. We defer to the other person's frame of reference in our attempts to minister to them. And we see this really in the main part of the reading, in verses 20 through 22. Paul says, To the Jews I became a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law I became as one outside the law, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. And here's the summary of all these examples. He says, I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. See, what Paul does is he enters their frame of reference of the person he's ministering to. He empathizes with them, with their background, with their culture, with their experiences, with their infirmities, with their pains. He knows them as well as they know themselves. He can explain their condition even better than they can explain it themselves. The late Francis Schaeffer once said that if he had only an hour to share the gospel with someone, he would spend the first 55 minutes 
asking questions, listening to them, learning about them, getting to know them, so that in the last five minutes he could have something meaningful to say to them. So he could explain the gospel in a way that would fit their frame of reference. So what's this look like? What's this look like for Paul? Well, we have some examples in our New Testament reading that, uh, that Nathan read for us this morning from Acts. So how does Paul become a Jew to the Jews? Well, we see this in Acts 16, where, he, where Paul actually circumcised Timothy. We see this in, in Acts 16. And why did he do it? It says in Acts 16.3, Paul did it because of the Jews, because of the Jews and their places. Because they knew that Timothy's father was a Greek and they were suspect of him. His mother was a Jew. They didn't treat him as one of their own. And Paul knew. Paul knew that circumcision was no longer needed. He knew that it no longer was a sign of God's covenant people. It had been replaced. It had been replaced with baptism. In fact, in the book of Galatians, Paul is emphatic that if you force circumcision as a requirement of the gospel, you have lost the gospel. So why does Paul do it? Why does Paul have Timothy circumcised? Well, it's an example of Paul and Timothy becoming a Jew to the Jews. See, Paul knew that this was a big deal for the Jews. It was a matter of pride for them. Even though it was no longer required, it certainly was not required for the Gentiles, but it was a big deal for them. And we need to understand this unique time in, in redemptive history that they were living in. We talked a little bit about this Wednesday night, and I think Nathan will probably talk a little bit about this this evening, this is a, this is a, a hybrid time. It's, a, it's an overlap time. This was a relatively short time, about, about 40 years between Christ's ascension and, and the Pentecost and, the, and the, the Holy Spirit being being poured out on the church. And this initiated the New Testament period. So that was on one end. And then there was the destruction of the temple. The destruction of the temple forever ended the Jewish sacrificial system. It ended basically the Old Testament period. But right now is a hybrid. The temple is in place, and Paul is ministering in this hybrid time. And as such, even though he knows that the ceremonial laws have been fulfilled in Christ, that they're no longer binding on the Christian, nonetheless, Paul acquiesces to circumcision in order to remove any ingrained cultural barriers that might hinder the proclamation of the gospel. And the proclamation of the gospel, that was the most important thing to Paul. So Paul gave up some of his freedoms. Timothy gave up some of his freedoms. He was no longer, no longer under this. But they did it in order to remove that barrier to the gospel going forth. And we see similar condescension by Paul in Acts 21, verses 17 to 26. Here Paul ceremonially purifies himself in the temple. And he actually pays the expenses of, of some men who had taken a, a temple vow. And Paul knew none of this was required under the new covenant. But he did this to make peace with the Jews because they saw Paul as a threat to the law of Moses. And Paul wasn't a threat. He was fulfilling the law of Moses. But they saw it as a threat, so he wanted to remove any barriers. So to the Jews, Paul became as a Jew. But we also see this with the Gentiles. We see this with the Gentiles, those outside the Jewish ceremonial law. Paul became as one outside the law that he might win those outside the law. And we see this with the illustration from the second part of, of the New Testament reading that Nathan read, where Paul was in Athens, and he delivered this address at the Areopagus in Acts 17. And here, Paul doesn't mention circumcision. He doesn't mention any of the Jewish laws. In fact, Paul becomes a Greek, and he adopts this method of, of rhetorical discourse and logical discussion. So the Areopagus, literally translated into Mars Hill, 
This is where the men would meet and they would discuss and debate new ideas and listen to new ideas, as we heard in the reading. And Paul here adopts their frame of reference. He doesn't quote Jewish history, he doesn't quote scripture. He actually identifies what's, what, they, what they're interested in. He identifies what's a priority in their life. He understands it's religion. Paul says in Acts 17, 22 and following, he says, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. He says, whereas I passed along, I observed the objects of your worship. I found also that there is an altar with an inscription to the unknown God. And then he gives them the answer. He says, what therefore you worship is unknown, I now proclaim to you. He's giving them the answer to what they're searching for. And then Paul makes this connection. He builds a bridge. He starts in the, the Athenian worldview, and he builds a bridge to Scripture. He builds a bridge to the gospel. See, but notice Paul doesn't, doesn't cite any scripture, he, but he explains to the Athenians a biblical message. Verse 24 and following, he says, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by, by man. <clears throat> See, he, he, he doesn't go through and read Genesis for him. That wouldn't mean anything to him. But he tells him, he summarizes what scripture says. And again, Paul knows all of this because it's revealed in Scripture. He's summarizing the Bible, the Scripture to them. And unknown to the Athenians, they're actually getting a Bible lesson. But notice that Paul does not confirm the message, his biblical message, the way we would. Right? The way I go through, I'm, I'm preaching something to you, and then I'm saying, look at your Bible. The Bible is what confirms it for me. But Paul doesn't do that because he knows that wouldn't mean anything. He says, look, they don't even know what he's talking about. They wouldn't recognize the authority. But what does Paul do? He rather quotes their own Greek poets and philosophers. He comes, he, he basically becomes one outside the law. We see this in Acts 17:28. He says, and it's a quote, for in him we live and move and have our being. That's a quote from one of their philosophers. He says, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. <clears throat> see, Paul recognizes that God in his common grace can communicate his wisdom through these pagan poets. So Paul quotes them, not because they give any new information. They're really giving what's in the Bible. The Bible is, is, is where the facts come. But, he, or t- but what he does is he quotes these because they'll be better received by his audience. He's entering their, their frame of reference. He's using things that they would know to help communicate these biblical truths to them. So this is an example of Paul becoming as one outside the law so he can win one those outside the law. There's one last group here that Paul identifies with in this passage, and this is the weak. And we see this in verse 22, where Paul says, To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. Now, the weak can refer to a, a lot of people here. It could refer to those uh, believers mentioned in, in chapter 8 who were tempted by the, the knowledgeable Christians to violate their consciences. But the weak could also refer to unbelievers needing to hear the gospel, needing to hear the gospel of grace. But the key factor in these, whether they're believers or not, of this weak as these are people who are tender. These are people who need encouragement. These are people who need gentleness. They don't need you to come at them with a sledgehammer. <clears throat> these are people who have emotional scars from, from life in this fallen world. They are hurt. They are broken. They are frightened. And our Lord himself gives us the, the best example of becoming weak to save the weak. He is the one who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. 
And we see this, this quality in our gospel reading, in his eating and, and, and drinking with sinners and tax collectors. See, Jesus was seeking out the lost. He was welcoming the lost. He wasn't condemning them. This is what the religious leaders were doing, the Pharisees were doing. But he was gentle in his interaction with these people. He was, inter- he was gentle with interaction with the sinners and the tax collectors and the lepers and the outcasts and, and the woman caught in adultery. Matthew 12, 20 says of Jesus that a bruised reed he would not break and a smoldering wick he will not quench. He is so gentle. He is tenderhearted. He is lowly to the weak. He walks with them in their pain and their suffering. And my friends, as his servants, we too should display this same compassion to the weak. We should become weak, that we might win the weak. But if we simply stop here, if we simply apply this principle of empathy and, and identify, which is important to those who are ministering to, without, without any caveats, without any qualifications, without any guardrails, we're going to get in trouble. We're going to get in trouble. And I fear many of us, I know myself, we are tempted to stop here. This we like to do. This, 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 this is, is, we're in agreement with this. And I think many churches and, and, and many Christians, we attempt to be all things to all people. And in doing so, we actually become useless to all. Because we need these guardrails. And what are these guardrails that will help us to be effective? And Paul gives us these guardrails that we need to be effective in our evangelism. And we see these guardrails in the form of the two parenthetical statements that Paul makes in this passage in verses 20 and 21. And you may have noticed when I read those verses earlier that I, that I skipped over these parenthetical statements. And I, and I did that because I wanted to, to focus on the main principle and not be distracted by the qualifications. But now we're coming back to these qualifications because these qualifications give us the third principle that we see in this text. And the third principle we say <clears throat> is that we are to ground our becoming all things to all people in our identity in Christ and in our obedience to his word. Our identity in Christ and our obedience to his word. So let's look at these two parenthetical statements one at a time and see what I mean here. So let's first look at verse 20. Paul says, to those under the law, I became as one under the law. And here's the parenthetical statement. Though not being myself under the law. See, even though Paul is identifying with those under the law, with the Jews, he never forgets. He never denies his identity in Christ. He never forgets his freedom in Christ. See, it's his freedom that grounds him. It's his freedom that enables him, that empowers his ministry to the Jews. See, what it does is it prevents him from getting sucked in to the same bondage that those he are ministering to are sucked into. I like to think of it as a lifeguard. I know, I know Madeline's a lifeguard, and some of the others here may have been lifeguards. A lifeguard is not going to do much good if he goes to try to save someone, and that person pulls them under, and they both drowned. See, when we are identifying with someone, when we're empathizing with the struggles of unbelievers, when we're walking with them alongside those who are hurting, we're walking alongside those who are messed, when we enter into their mess, <clears throat> we can get pulled in. We can get lost. We must stay grounded in Christ. If we're not grounded in Christ, we are no use to them. We must be grounded in our freedom in Christ, in the power that we have in Christ through the Holy Spirit. This, my friends, is our protection in ministry. 
We're not effective unless we have that. This allows us to be effective in ministry. This keeps us from getting pulled under by those we are attempting to save. It's, it's like the, 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 the big life preserver or the big buoy that the lifeguard comes out keeps them get, from getting pulled under from the person they're trying to save. So this is the first guardrail. Our identity in Christ protects us from getting sucked in. The second guardrail comes from the second parathetical statement that we see in verse 21. <clears throat> so verse 21 says, So those outside the law, this is the Gentiles, I became as one outside the law. And here's a statement. Not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ. See, when we are ministering to and evangelizing to those outside the church, those who, who really know nothing about the law of God, know nothing about Christ, know nothing about the Bible, those who think nothing of, of blaspheming our Lord. I mean, you go out, you're, you're people who don't know, know Christ, you'll hear the, the, the name of the Lord, his holy name, used as a curse word. It'll, it'll boil your blood, but they don't know any better. <clears throat> those who, who live in a lifestyle of, of blatant disobedience to God will, God's will. <clears throat> and to become all things to all people, we must enter this world. We must attempt to connect with them from their frame of reference. But we must never, we must never forget that even though we are tempting and going into this frame of reference, we are still under the law of Christ. We must never forget that they are still under the law of Christ. And this law, how do we know this law? It's articulated in his word. We must never abandon his word in our interactions. We may not quote chapter and verse. It actually won't do any good. They won't understand. It'll be meaningless to them. It'll be as meaningless as it would have been to the Athenians at the Areopagus. But we are to be living by his word. We are to be communicating biblical principles, even if we never quote chapter and verse. <clears throat> and we may, as a, as a matter of wisdom, in an attempt not to be distracted from the main message of the gospel, we may overlook many ways they violate God's law. We may overlook blasphemy. We may overlook profanity. We may overlook sexual immorality. But my friends, we can never, we can never explicitly condone any of them. In other words, we cannot join them in their sin. We cannot bless their sin. And we have to be very careful here. God's word alone is our standard for morality. And there is a strong temptation, a strong temptation for us to overlook, to, to ignore God's word in order to make the message more palatable to unbelievers. There is a desire by many, even many conservative Bible-believing Christians, to hide what we truly believe so we can connect with lost sinners. And this is a noble, this is a noble motive. And I agree that wisdom dictates that we don't lead with these controversial issues. But my friends, we can never deny them. We can never hide what the Bible clearly teaches. Doing so is not only unfaithful to the Lord, it's also dishonest to the unbeliever. It's manipulative. It, it, it reveals, a, it reveals a, a, a lack of trust in God's sovereignty. And the last point I want to make from this text, we see at the end of verse 22. And Paul says, I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. Some. Notice the text doesn't say that I might save all, that I might save most, that I might save many. It says that I might save some. See, the reality is we can do everything right. We can pay the high personal costs to reach the lost. 
We can perfectly understand their, their background and their situation and we can communicate it in a way that, that the world would understand. And we may be faithfully grounded in our identity of Christ and, and our obedience to his word. And they still walk away. They still walk away. See, people walked away from Paul in Athens. They mocked him. The crowds walked away from Jesus when they realized he wasn't the political leader that would lead the uprising against Rome that they had hoped. And they mocked him. They mocked him as he was on the cross, paying, bearing the sins of his elect. They mocked him. And my friends, they will walk away from us as well. They will mock us. But take heart. Take heart. We are in good company. See, we are called to be faithful. We are not called to be successful. Because like Paul says in verse 23, we do it all for the sake of the gospel, that we may share with them in the blessings. That is the, that is the privilege we have to share in the blessing, to share in the abuse, to share in the hostility. If, if they hated the Lord, why should they treat us any different? That is what our calling is. So brothers and sisters, take heart. It's a noble calling. It's a difficult calling. But by the power of the Holy Spirit, all those that the Lord has ordained will come to him. That we can be sure. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask for your wisdom in ministering. Lord, there are, there are many opportunities that we have. Lord, the, 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 the fields are ripe for harvest. And Father, we pray that you will give us the words, each one of us individually. We have people who, who do not know you, people right now that we're thinking about, what words can I say? What can I say? Lord, I pray that you will lead us. But give us the trust. Give us the hope in your means. Give us the trust that we do not need to be manipulative and we do not need to uh, change the message. We do not need to modify the message. We can trust that your word faithfully proclaimed will bear fruit. Your word promises that it will happen to us. So, Father, give us that trust. Give us that hope. Give us that confidence. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.